For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline, Episode B8, Skelus. There was no comet or eclipse or rumbling from nearby Mount Vesuvius, not even a rare summer storm. To all appearances, the 19th of August, 14 AD, was a day much like any other, except that Octavian... Princeps, Caesar Augustus, and ruler of Rome for over four decades, was dead. For a man who'd craved stability, the lack of outward sign was somehow fitting. Not only had he died in Nola, the same town where his father had passed away over seventy years before, but even in the very same bedroom. But of course, appearances aside, everything had changed. Octavian's wife, Livia, delayed the announcement of her husband's death until her son, Tiberius, had reached her side. The death of Caesar Augustus would be announced in the same breath as the elevation of Caesar Tiberius. As the news spread, mourners by the thousands came to accompany the funeral procession from Nola to Rome. In a huge public ceremony, officiated by Tiberius, the princeps body was cremated on a pyre and interred in the Augustan mausoleum. Like Julius Caesar before him, Octavian was deified by the Roman Senate. With the princeps safely consigned to the heavens, Tiberius was free to focus on earthly matters. On his small island off the Tuscan coast, 26-year-old Agrippa Posthumus, Tiberius's one-time co-heir, was soon brought word of Octavian's death. The centurion who told him then drew his gladius and cut Posthumus down. Not a good thing were a Caesar too many. Rumors that he or his mother had ordered Posthumus killed were met with outraged denial by Tiberius, who invited the Senate to investigate the crime. From Livia, now known as the Augusta, there was only a cryptic silence, but it soon became clear there'd be no action by the Senate. 
Like Octavian, Tiberius likely knew that blood spilled at a regime's inauguration would eventually be forgotten. He also knew that the old forms must be maintained, even as their substance was gutted. At first, Tiberius used only those powers previously granted by the Senate. But soon other titles and powers began to coalesce around him. The Romans had known over forty years of stable rule, after decades of bloody civil war. They'd endure almost anything not to return to that era. And, at the moment, that meant backing Tiberius. Any reservations they felt at doing so were mitigated by one major factor— Tiberius was now 56 years old, and even if he was no longer a placeholder in name, his age likely made him one anyway. And, of course, waiting prominently in the wings was his designated heir, the 29-year-old Germanicus. Handsome, charismatic, brave, a celebrated general, a former consul, a devoted family man, a true Julian, and a virtual Roman superhero, Caesar Germanicus would surely set right any ills that Caesar Tiberius might inflict. I mean, seriously, how bad could the next decade possibly get? In his royal court at Caesarea, 62-year-old King Juba II likely greeted the transition with equanimity. Having grown up a virtual brother to Tiberius, Juba must have had faith that the Roman people would eventually come around. Of course, it was impossible to fill Octavian's sandals, and who wouldn't come up short in the comparison? In the meantime, Juba had more pressing matters to attend to. Prompted by news of Octavian's death, hostile tribes were invading southern Mauritania. And, again, Juba was grateful for a son to share his burdens. At 27 years old, Ptolemy had effectively been elevated to co-ruler of Mauritania. It was a role both his upbringing and recent time abroad had prepared him well for. In Rome, Ptolemy stayed with the family of Juba's foster sister, Antonia Minor. Her eldest son, Germanicus, was two years his senior, her daughter, Lavilla, the same age, and her other son, Claudius, three years younger. In contrast to Juba, Ptolemy was a direct blood relation to the family, since both Antonia and Selene had been daughters of Mark Antony. It's easy to imagine Ptolemy looking up to his cousin Germanicus and using the opportunity to immerse himself in Roman culture. As fate would have it, Ptolemy's military career began in parallel with his cousin's. In 6 AD, while Ptolemy fought the Gaetulians alongside Juba, Germanicus had served under Tiberius in Illyricum. Years of subsequent conflict had rendered both men seasoned commanders, and Juba likely let his son lead Mauritanian forces against the latest uprising. If so, Ptolemy's career once again mirrored his cousin's. Soon after Tiberius's elevation, Germanicus was made commander of all Roman forces along the Rhine. 
His first action was to quash a legionary revolt, overextended service, and lack of bonuses. Germanicus addressed their first complaint on the spot by discharging all veterans who'd fulfilled their terms. For the second, he came up with a clever and very Roman plan. You know who has your bonuses, all those nice little German villages across the Rhine. So how about we go claim it, and along the way, get some payback for the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest. In short order, around 25,000 troops and eight divisions of cavalry surged across the Rhine into Germania. It was the beginning of two years of relentless campaigning, during which, in Tacitus's words, the countryside was wasted with sword and flame. With Posthumus dead and Germanicus dispatched to the frontier, Tiberius turned his thoughts toward his ex-wife Julia. And as a rule, you don't want Tiberius turning his thoughts toward you. Under Octavian, Julia had been banished from Rome. Since then, her isolation had only been broken by news of the deaths of her three sons, Gaius, Lucius, and Posthumus, and the banishment of her daughter, Julia Minor. Tiberius judged, correctly, that few gave thought to Julia the Elder nowadays, so he decided to have her imprisoned and slowly starved to death. While the murder of Posthumus could be excused as political, Julia's was strictly personal, and sent a clear message that it was best to follow Tiberius's lead. The problem was that Tiberius didn't seem to want to lead Rome anywhere. Early on, he seemed open to letting the Senate guide policy, but was soon appalled by their lack of initiative. Octavian had neutered the Senate, and fear of offending Tiberius only made them more timid. They'd become, as Tiberius would later remark, men fit for slavery. In the end, he assumed all the powers they offered him, though a personal sense of honor kept him from adopting all of Octavian's former titles. Out on the frontier, Germanicus continued his balancing act with the legions. The fury of the common soldier was unabated. He'd just managed to redirect it across the Rhine. Their attitude toward Tiberius became abundantly clear when they offered to help Germanicus seize power. Protesting he'd rather die than be a traitor, Germanicus drew his sword and plunged it toward his chest, only to be restrained at the last minute by his men. It was all pretty high drama, but it had the intended effect. Talk of rebellion died off, replaced by a renewed respect for their commander. Still, the volatility of the situation prompted Germanicus to send his pregnant wife, Agrippina Major, from his military camp back to Rome. While they sympathized with his concerns, the legions pleaded that his two-year-old boy remain. Not for any nefarious purpose, just because he'd kind of become the camp mascot 
running around to and fro in his cute little soldier boots. I mean, he was just so freaking adorable. The soldiers even had a nickname for him, Boudicans, or in Latin, Caligula. In the end, Germanicus bowed to their request. Riding the wave of revenge and avarice, Germanicus led Roman forces ever deeper into Germania. The first tribes were taken unawares, mercilessly slaughtered, and their belongings plundered to enrich the legions. But as the carnage began to mount, larger and more notorious tribes took to the field. First came the Chatti, the tribe who'd claimed the life of Germanicus's father, Drusus. Using an old fort of his father's for a base, Germanicus went on the attack, killing those he could and putting the others to flight. Next, it was the Cheruski, the tribe who'd utterly annihilated the legions of Quintilius Varus. On hearing of the Roman invasion, their leader, Arminius, had rallied the Cheruski and other neighboring tribes into a large and fearsome force. Germanicus's confidence was tempered by experience, and he questioned Roman ability to withstand a combined assault. But then, in the midst of that doubt, his men came across the killing field. The trail that brought them there had held grim signs, an abandoned eagle standard and the remains of a Roman camp. But there'd been little to prepare them for the scale of the carnage. The bleached bones of men and horses, broken weapons, skulls nailed to tree trunks, altars where the Roman officers had been tortured and sacrificed to German gods. It was all as the survivors had described it. The legions of Quintilius Varus had died here, and far worse. At Germanicus's command, the thousands of bodies were collected into funeral mounds and put to proper rest. If fighting the Chatti had made the campaign personal, the discovery of Varus's legions bonded the Romans together and recommitted them all to the task at hand. This was the beginning of the real war against Arminius, and it would take another hard year of campaigning, full of numerous setbacks, before Germanicus dealt the Cheruski their first serious defeat. Germanicus was certain that one more year of fighting would see their enemies either captured or destroyed, which is just about the time he was recalled by Tiberius. Even as the war was progressing, Germanicus had been awarded a triumph by the Senate, and Tiberius urged him to return to Rome to claim it. He also threw in a variety of other arguments that Germanicus had already earned enough glory, that negotiations often gain more than warfare, and that if the war must continue, Tiberius's biological son, Drusus the Younger, deserved his own chance to shine. Tiberius even dangled the year's consulship as a final inducement. The point about Drusus was likely genuine. Though he and Germanicus had always been close, Drusus spent most of his youth overshadowed by his larger-than-life cousin. 
only two years apart, they were actually now cousins by birth, brothers by adoption, and brothers-in-law by Drusus's marriage to Germanicus's sister Lavilla. But the fact that he was a Claudian and not a true Julian likely made Drusus insecure and prone to overcompensate in a variety of ways. Faced with a revolt by legions in Pannonia, virtually in parallel with the Rhine Revolt, Drusus had relied on far more brutal tactics, seizing and executing the ringleaders, then commencing a general slaughter of any troops who resisted. The revolt was put down, but it didn't necessarily gild his reputation. Aside from what Tacitus called a natural bias toward severity, Drusus was also known to be hot-tempered and a heavy drinker, qualities that always left him wanting in any comparison to Germanicus. But regardless, he never exhibited any jealousy or bitterness toward his adopted brother. In fact, it was during his first consulship, in 15 AD, that Drusus led the call for Germanicus to receive a triumph. Perhaps it was only fair to let Drusus earn his own slice of German glory. But of course, none of Tiberius's arguments obscured the true cause. He was both jealous of Germanicus's success and nervous about his growing status among the Rhine legions. Though he clearly knew all this, Germanicus remained the dutiful soldier and obeyed Tiberius's command. As his last action in the field, Germanicus managed to recover a second of Varus's eagle standards. In retrospect, the German experience had been something of an anomaly. Roman campaigns were historically undertaken to support allies, conquer new territory, or defend land already held. And while Octavian had once sent Tiberius and his brother Drusus to conquer Germania, the crushing defeat at the Teutoburg Forest had caused a major policy shift. At the time, it was only implied. But then, in his will... Octavian explicitly advised the restriction of the Republic within its current frontiers. Which meant that when Germanicus set off to put down the Rhine Rebellion, Germania was no longer a target of Roman conquest. Not that Germanicus's invasion hadn't brought a host of benefits. Blunting legionary discontent, breaking German alliances, recovering lost eagle standards, getting revenge for both his father, Drusus, and the massacre of the Teutoburg Forest. But it represented a troubling break with official Roman policy. And not even Tiberius's policy, but the final request of the deified Augustus all of which marked Germanicus as a powerful man willing to take dangerous risks and act on his own initiative. All the more reason for Tiberius to worry. In May 17 AD, Germanicus held his triumph over the Chatti, the Cherusci, and other allied tribes east of the Rhine. All the usual elements were present— with the added bonus of seeing Germanicus ride in his triumphal chariot along with all five of his young children. 
Eldest was Nero at eleven, then Drusus at ten, then adorable little Caligula at five, Agrippina Minor at two, and Drusilla at one year old. It must have been easy for those present to project out beyond the cul-de-sac of Tiberius to the restoration of a true Julian dynasty under the seemingly perfect family. For the moment, Tiberius could do little but resent the adoration and keep his word, nominating Germanicus for that year's consulship alongside himself. He had plans for Germanicus, and would reveal them soon, but first he decided to revenge himself for an ancient slight. And I'm sorry to break it to you, Archelaus, but Tiberius has just turned his thoughts toward you. Juba's former father-in-law, King Archelaus, had now ruled Cappadocia for over 50 years, half that time alongside his second wife, Queen Pythodorus of Pontus. It had been nearly two decades since Gaius Caesar's eastern expedition, when Archelaus had refused to meet with the exiled Tiberius. At the time, it had seemed a prudent move, since Gaius was ascendant and Tiberius in imperial disfavor. But now, of course, Tiberius was ascendant and Gaius was dead, making Archelaus the one in imperial disfavor. The aged king was led to believe that if he came to Rome and begged for clemency, all would be forgiven. But this was just a lie, to draw him from the relative safety of Cappadocia. Arriving in Rome, he found a contemptuous Tiberius and a senate ready to impeach him for mismanaging his kingdom. The charges were clearly fabricated, but that didn't really matter. Archelaus was required to remain in Rome for the trial's duration, and the constant stress and humiliation proved too much to endure. In the end, he either took his own life or succumbed to ill health. Either way, Tiberius had gotten his revenge. Juba likely received word of Archelaus's fate much as he had the sad passing of Glaphyra. He likely treasured his few short years spent in Cappadocia, but that was already a lifetime ago and a world away. In the here and now, Juba's time was increasingly occupied managing tribal rebellions. The uprising sparked by Octavian's death had been quickly put down, with success commemorated on a series of victory coins issued in 15 AD. But Only two years later, all of North Africa was confronted by a whole different animal. Tacfarinus was an ethnic Gaetulian who'd served in the auxiliaries in Roman Africa. His breaking point apparently came when Roman settlers occupied the traditional grazing lands of his native tribe, the Musaliamii. After deserting from the army, Tacfarina slowly assembled a band of outlaws and organized and trained them in Roman military tactics. Assuming leadership of his own tribe and allying himself with two other Gaetulian tribes, Tacfarina soon began launching attacks across both Africa and Mauritania. 
Their ferocity, speed, and ability to vanish back into the desert made the Gaetulians both a terrifying force and a frustrating opponent. The Roman governor of Africa was Furius Camillus, descendant of the legendary dictator. Despite being vastly outnumbered, Camillus took his single legion, with auxiliaries, into the field hoping to draw enemy tribes into a set-piece battle. Tacfarinas took the bait, and Camillus employed the superior discipline and skill of his troops to inflict heavy losses on the Gaetulians. In the battle's aftermath, Tacfarinas was considered a spent force, while Camillus was praised to the skies by Tiberius and awarded a triumph by the Senate. The fact that Juba and Ptolemy had also played a role was reflected by a series of victory coins issued the next year. Unfortunately, Tacfarinas was just getting started. In 18 AD, his attacks would escalate, and both the Romans and Mauritanians would find themselves on the defensive. Though Juba had no way of knowing, the rest of his life would be spent fighting Tacfarinas, and Ptolemy would inherit the rebellion along with the kingdom. Even as Ptolemy embarked on this new, increasingly martial phase of his career, his cousin Germanicus was contemplating a change of his own. Archelaus had died at the same time as two neighboring kings, leaving Cappadocia, Cilicia, and Comagene in various states of instability. Armenia and Parthia were close to war, while Syria and Judea were groaning under the weight of Roman taxation. Long story short, it was time for someone to take up the Eastern Imperium and manage all these issues. Tiberius nominated Germanicus for the job. It was certainly a promotion to a role only Agrippa, Tiberius, and Gaius Caesar had been offered before him. But again, Germanicus likely guessed at his adopted father's true motives, separating him from his fiercely loyal Rhine legions and sending him far away, to a new command fraught with danger and uncertainty. The Roman East was ancient, complex, and mysterious, difficult to understand and challenging to rule. But Germanicus was confident he could turn the posting to his advantage and sidestep any difficulties Tiberius put in his path. Unfortunately, Germanicus had misjudged the extent of Tiberius's malice.